And just before we turn to God's word together this morning, I, I want to take a moment or so to um, just say a word about something that is on all of our minds uh, a lot these days. Um, at the risk of stating the obvious, I think it's important that we just all recognize that this COVID pandemic has had an effect on all of us. Um, and the fact that it's been a little prolonged and the fact that the months ahead are a little uncertain, I think has just added to that effect. It's affecting every one of us personally, uh, maybe not in entirely unique ways. Um, there are some common ways that we've all been affected, but it's touched every one of us. No one is exempt, at least I'm not aware of anyone who's been unaffected. Um, there's obvious ways. It's affected work, it's affected school, it's affected our socializing, our coming and our going. But what I am uh, more aware of and what I want to kind of address just briefly this morning is um, just this sense of a more personal internal effect. Um, this has affected our emotions. This has affected our psyches. It's thrown us off a little bit. Uh, maybe you feel a little less motivated these days. Maybe you feel a little bit more anxious. Maybe you just feel more vulnerable or faint-hearted. I mean, I can feel those things. I'm guessing you do too. Um, some of us wonder if we're going crazy. Uh, some of us wonder why we feel a little bit more depressed. Um, listen, we are frail creatures, very susceptible to being affected by things, and this isn't your average thing. None of us is practiced in pandemics. And it can affect us in ways that are hard to describe. And so I find myself so strengthened these days by the fact that God is not changed. Um, he sees and knows every little thing that's going on. Um, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Now, I think that there are things that we can do that we can attend to, I think we need to pay attention to and stay connected to our close relationships, our close connections. Stay in touch with people. And I think we need to pay attention to our physical health. God has made us unified beings, so pay attention to your eating and your sleeping. Pay attention to your spiritual disciplines, your regular time feeding your soul in God's Word, your regular time talking with God. Be regular in those things and make sure that you are staying plugged in in one way or another to your church family. This is a place of life and health. God means it to be. I think we're going to weather this storm. In fact, I think we're doing really well as a church. I'm so grateful to God for that. But I just know that we're all affected, and until this thing passes, we're going to be affected. So I want to encourage you, look to the things that God has provided for you, for your strength and your stability. Stay faithful there. Steady on. God has promised to watch over and provide, so let us stay steadfast. All right, thank you for hearing me on that. I just think it's good for us to recognize and to identify with one another. We're all feeling this. So let's pray together, and then let's look to God's Word.
Father, thank you. We recognize this morning that this treasure that we have, we have in jars of clay. We are weak, and you are strong. And so, God, we look to you for strength. I pray particularly for those who are in great need of strength, who feel vulnerable and who feel faint-hearted. God, be their strength, I pray. Every one of us needs it. And Lord, one of the ways that that you do strengthen us is through your word. And so here we are. We're going to open your word and we pray, Lord, speak to us now. Encourage us in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you turn uh, with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the book of Genesis. And this morning, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We have taken these past several weeks, as you know, to look at what we have called key issues. And I want us to take two more weeks thinking a bit more personally. These are still key truths, foundational truths, taken from the opening chapters of God's Word. But this week and next week, I want us to consider some things that speak to us perhaps a bit more individually. And for that, this morning, I want us to look at this man, Noah. So look with me at chapter 6, starting at verse 5. I'm going to read actually down through verse 13. This is God's Word. You follow along as I read. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Something happens in our brains when we read these opening verses of Genesis chapter 6. You see those first words of verse 5, and it reminds you of the last time You heard those words. Back in chapter 1, at the end of the creation account, we read these words, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And you see those same words here, and God saw, the Lord saw, and then you proceed to read the rest of verse 5, and you think, what happened? I mean, the contrast could not be more absolute. Chapter 1, God saw everything he made, and it was very good. Chapter 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. 
I mean, you talk about a, a literally world-transforming change in the space of just five chapters. Now, let's remember. Remember, God had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And they did. Look back at chapter 5 for just a moment. Chapter 5, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And that phrase is repeated all the way through this genealogy that we find in chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Look at verse 10. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And that's the same all the way through this entire record. Do you see what's happening here? Mankind is being fruitful and multiplying. There is a growing population. And even though the focus in this chapter is on one particular line of descendants, it's clear that mankind is multiplying. But during the course of this increase in the human population, there is a situation developing. It's a moral situation. It's a cultural, societal situation. We've seen, or we will see, it's... It's a universal situation, and when we read about it, it's just a heart-sickening situation. See, this expanding population that we see in chapter 5, it is not only growing in size, it is growing in sinning. Please notice the heightening of this in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, not just that man was occasionally wicked, but his wickedness was great. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, not just some of the intentions of his heart, but every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Not just some of the time, but all the time. I mean, look at what has happened in these opening chapters of Genesis. This downward moral spiral in chapters 1 and 2. Everything's very good. In chapter 3, things go from good to bad. In chapter 4, they go from bad to worse. I mean, in chapter 3, Eve had to be talked into sinning. In chapter 4, Cain won't have even God talk him out of sinning. And by chapter 5, you've got this guy named Lamech who's just outright boasting in his evil. And now, in chapter 6, things have gone from bad to worse to total depravity. Man hating God, hating God's rules, hating God's design. And what we see in verse 5 is just reiterated in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So, verse 6 and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Just let those words sink in for a moment. It grieved God to his heart. But now, let your eyes go to verse 8 and just notice that first word. You see it there? But... I mean, you read that and you wonder, is there maybe some hope? 
I mean, the world is a mess. It's a complete mess. But the earth is filled with violence. It's completely corrupt. But, I mean, you know that little word has has a role to play that is out of proportion, all out of proportion with its size. Not just in this passage, but in the whole Bible. Time after time, things are a mess, and then you have some statement that begins with that word, but. That is captured so powerfully in the book of Romans. Chapter 3, after Paul is gone, remember this, to these great lengths to describe the utter depravity of all of mankind. There are none righteous, no, not one. We are all under sin and therefore under God's just judgment. And then he says, chapter 3, verse 21, but, but now, and you have that beautiful, powerful, hope-giving declaration of what God has done to rescue sinners. And it's the exact same dynamic here in Genesis chapter 6. I mean, the world was a mess in Noah's day. And I don't want to minimize things by saying, you know, it's a mess. I mean, just look at the words that are used to describe it. Violent. I mean, we've had a, we've had a taste of that recently. We know what that looks like. Um, corrupt, wicked, evil. And here is this guy in verses 8 and 9 that is described in these terms that are completely different. Polar opposites. He's righteous. He's blameless. I mean, he walks with God, for goodness sake. Just like the description of evil is is heightened in verse 5, so the description of Noah's distinctive character is heightened there in verse 9. He is a righteous man. He is blameless in his generation. He walks with God. That word righteous means he does what is right. He follows God's ways. He abstains from evil. Blameless speaks not of perfection. Noah was a sinner but he was noted for his uprightness. And he could not be accused of what the rest of the world was being accused of. You know, later in the Bible, um, Noah's righteousness is celebrated. I mean, Noah's righteousness is legendary in the Bible. I want you to see something. I want you to flip over to a book that I'm guessing you haven't read recently, Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel is one of the long prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So find Ezekiel, and I want you to go to chapter 14. I want you to know this is in your Bible, Ezekiel chapter 14, and this is what the prophet, what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. I mean, you know these other guys. We know about Daniel and his righteousness. We know about Job and his righteousness. And here, with this, these guys is Noah. Ezekiel names him again in that same chapter later on. And the very same thing happens in the New Testament. Noah is spoken of with special honor. In the book of Hebrews, um, 
Twice in the, in the letters that Peter has written, he, he's just legendary for his righteousness. So back to Genesis chapter 6. Here is this incredibly bright light shining in verses 8 and 9. In the middle of, I mean literally surrounded by this darkness, and it's clearly heightened, it's set off, it's emphasized to make a point. What's the point? Here it is. Righteousness matters to God. Personal righteousness matters in God's world, in God's design, in God's purposes for humanity. Personal righteousness is a key foundational thing. Over the past six weeks now, we've seen these truths, these foundational truths, things that are foundational to God's purposes that should include, um, that should actually shape our, our thinking and our behavior, the, the, the equality of all human beings, male and female, black skin, brown skin, white skin, any shade of skin, all made in God's image. The sanctity of human life from womb to grave. God's design of human sexuality, male and female, distinct, different, determined. God's design for marriage, a man and a woman in a special God-sealed relationship. God's design for family, God's design for society. And now here we see pictured in this man this foundational truth of the importance, the foundational importance in God's plan of personal righteousness. So what is righteousness? It is doing right, living by God's standard, living according to God's design, and standing for what is right. You know, we've been introduced to this reality already in Genesis. Um, with Adam and Eve, look back at chapter 2 for a second. Remember this, chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. I mean, here is the expectation and the opportunity to do what is right and to stand for what is right. I mean, that's what Adam should have done. He was right there. Did you notice this? Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He's right there. And so he should have stood for what is right. No, Eve, no, no. God has told us not to eat of that. Let's do what is right. Let's stand for righteousness. We saw it last week with Cain. Chapter 4, look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door for you. You see, for God's purposes, in God's design, for human flourishing, personal righteousness is a key component. And it ends up being key, not just on the individual level. I remember hearing my pastor growing up on many occasions quoting Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. 
But it starts right here with personal righteousness, doing what is right, standing for what is right. Noah was a righteous man, a righteous human being. Listen, can I ask you this morning, are you aware that your personal righteousness matters in God's world? In God's design for humanity, it matters to God's purposes, what he's doing in the world. Your own doing right and your standing for what is right. It matters. God has called us to it, just as God has called you and me to recognize and honor the equality of all people. Just as God calls you and me to recognize and honor the sanctity of every human life, he calls us, he calls you, he calls me to live in righteousness. It matters in God's world how we live. It's, it's an important part of the way that God intends to accomplish his purposes in the world. And yes, it can, in fact, it will make a difference in the lives of other people. But that is not fundamentally why we do it. We do it out of love for God. We do it out of honor for God and a desire to be aligned with his purposes in the world, what he's seeking to get done, and he intends to use our lives he made us in his image. He made us to reflect him. He is perfectly righteous, and he calls us to imitate him, to walk in a way that reflects his values and his activity. God has a plan for humanity. We have a role to play in that plan, and our righteousness matters in that role. So, yes, Jesus says to us, let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify God. Be salt and light in the world. So we personally treat people with equality and we stand for it. We personally protect human life and we stand for it. We personally respect and we honor God's design of human sexuality and marriage and family and society. We honor our responsibilities in each one of those areas. And in fact, in everything that God has said, we seek to personally live in righteousness and stand for righteousness. But now here's the bad news. As with everything else that we've looked at so far, this thing... This key foundational reality of personal righteousness doesn't go unchallenged. I mean, we've seen how human equality is targeted by sin and it results in racism and all kinds of hatred. And we've seen how the sanctity of, of human life is targeted by sin and it results in the taking of human life. And we could just go right down that list and it's exactly the same here. The choice of man to live according to what God has said is actively targeted. We see it here in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent challenging, did God really say that? And sometimes just outright disagreeing, you will not surely die. God's lying when he says that. I mean, we see it in Genesis 3, and we see it throughout the Bible. We see it right here with Noah. There are these powerful forces working against the personal righteousness of God's people. 
And I want to think for a bit in our remaining time now about those opposing forces. And as we do this, can I just encourage you this morning, um, take this very personally. Sometimes when we hear God's word preached or teached, we can, or taught, we can, we can kind of sometimes hold it out there. You know, we agree with it, but we just hold it out at arm's length. Don't do that. Bring this in. Take it in close. Recognize that it has to do with you. It's God speaking directly to you so that we might, yes, be sobered and aware, but ultimately so that we can see there is a real hope for our personal righteousness and we can see where it comes from. So let's consider here three things briefly that are against you. First, friends, there is an enemy. A personal enemy of your righteousness. You know this, right? There is an enemy of your soul. He does not want you living for God. He does not want you walking in righteousness. He is intent on foiling God's plan. The Bible talks about him. He is named Satan. That word Satan actually means adversary, opposer. He is God's adversary and he's your adversary if you belong to God and you are seeking to live for him. He, he is seeking, this adversary is seeking not just to trip you up a little bit, he is seeking to derail you completely and, and then to devour you. He has come to, to kill and to destroy. He hates God. He is especially eager to get you to not trust God and to not obey God. He shows up first. A few chapters before this in Genesis chapter 3, you know the story. God had instructed Adam and Eve very clearly that they have free reign in the whole garden. All of this is for you, just not that one. Doing righteousness would have been obeying God and not eating from that tree. And standing for righteousness would have been Adam saying, Eve, no, we will not do that. Satan, God's enemy, your enemy, is real. He's a spiritual being. He has a mind. He has a will. He's powerful. And he shows up on the pages of Scripture. He shows up in the lives of God's people. And he is seeking to undo everything God is doing. He is against your allegiance to God. He is against your obedience to God. He is absolutely against your righteousness. He wants to destroy it. And as if that's not bad enough, there is, secondly, a very antagonistic world we live in. Now, without question, this opposing force is highly influenced by that first opposition that we named. Satan is described as the ruler of this world. But in time, the, the world takes on its own life and its own opposition to us. You know, often in Christian circles, we hear about the, the three enemies of your soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, we've talked about the devil. We need to think a little bit about the world and its opposition to our righteousness. And that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth, not talking about the soil, he's talking about the world. It was corrupt, filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Noah would have experienced that 
And that was the world he lived in. And he would have experienced the opposition of those around him. Can you imagine the mockery and the scoffing that Noah would have endured? Uh, you know, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he likes to talk about Noah in just a few verses in his first letter. After he talks about Noah, he says these words. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They are opposed to your righteousness, and that can be really challenging. I mean, I imagine if we took the time this morning that every one of us could share stories of what this looks like in, in our own lives, things that we've been maligned about because of our righteousness, our refusal to join in. We've all experienced it. The pressure, the pressure to not be different, the pressure to not stand out, sometimes that opposition can take really devastating forms, can affect us emotionally, financially, physically. I mean, we know this. The world will not encourage your righteousness and your stand for righteousness. I mean, they're not going to mind if you're, if, if you're just nice. They'll like that. That's fine. But your act of godliness, your righteousness and your standing for righteousness, that doesn't sit so well. Well, there's one more opposing force. And this is the tricky one. And in some sense, it's, it's, the, the, it's the most challenging one. Third, our righteousness will be opposed by our own weakness and failure. A moment ago, I referenced these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, along with these other two, we've got to acknowledge the opposition of our own sinful nature because the fact is we do sin. The Apostle John is very clear. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Well then, you ask, what's this about Noah being righteous and blameless? I mean, I thought Romans 3 made it pretty clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. And in fact, if you keep, <laughs> if you keep reading in Noah's story, after the whole flood business is over, Noah and his family are reestablished on the earth, and you know what happens? Noah go goes out and he just gets like smashingly drunk. You can read about it in chapter 9. And who of us cannot relate? Maybe not to the smashingly, smashingly drunk part, but, but to messing up. Um, there is an obscure passage in a somewhat obscure book in the Bible. I am so glad it's in the Bible. I would put it on my short list of favorite passages. I want you to see it with me this morning. It's in the book of Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just back up two books, find Zechariah chapter 3. I think you'll find yourself encouraged by the fact that God has included this in his word to us. Zechariah chapter 3, a vision of Joshua, the high priest. Then he, 
This is the prophet talking about God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Listen, friends, we're going to stumble. And sometimes we're going to fall terribly. But it is right here in dealing with this third thing, our own weakness, our own failures, our own sin, it is right here that the gospel, with its message of forgiveness and cleansing, is so powerful. It helps us to see our failures in the right light. That yes, there's real sin in us, but that God has in Christ done something to remove that sin from us and make us clean. Amen. And it's right here in dealing with this, this reality of our sin that the gospel, with its message of available grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace to help us live in obedience and faith going forward, is so powerful. Friends, that's what this book is all about. Yes, it is a history of human sin, but far more it is the story of God's grace towards sinners, not just rescuing them, but helping them. Clothing them in a righteousness from God, the righteousness of Christ, and then changing them, gradually changing us, making us more and more righteous like he is. So, Christian, Regularly remind yourself of this truth. Christ's righteousness credited to me. Focus on Christ. Remind yourself of what you have from and in the life-giving Son of God and surround yourself with people who also love Jesus and who are not afraid to talk about Jesus. And take the time to reflect on truth in God's Word or, or in the songs that we sing we sang this last week. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Now, I know we don't talk like that. Bliss, glorious. But it's true. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Or think about this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. So brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, we can live every day in joyful confidence because Christ is here and he is ours. And Christ will be here tomorrow and he will be ours forever. So remember what you have in Christ. But then remember that he calls for, he intends your righteousness. He is at work for your practical righteousness so that you can, I can actually be righteous. When confronted with a choice, I can do right. And I can stand for what is right. Friends, you, you know this. There are so many possible ways you could live your life. You, you could pursue a variety of things in this life. You could, you could pursue work. You could pursue education. You could pursue comfort with your family. And I, and I suppose all of those are okay ways to live unless this Christianity thing is true. And if it's true, then those other ways of living will not be satisfying, and in fact, ultimately, they'll be dead ends. The only thing that makes sense is for you to walk with God, to follow Christ. That's what you were made for, to walk with God, this God who, who also walks with us. So Christian, you can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And he puts that righteousness to use for your joy, for your good, for the good of those around you, your family, your society, and for the advance of his kingdom and his glory on the earth. Friends, may it be true in your life and in mine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this book, and we thank you for this man, Noah. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from him. But Lord, far more important, I thank you for your son, whose righteousness... Um, covers my sin and whose help helps me to be righteous. So God, I pray for us as a church and for each one of us as individuals, give us hearts of faith, give us hearts of obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.